0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ampere Amplified. We're coming to you from Ampere Studios here in downtown Portland, overlooking the Fremont Bridge on the Willamette waterfront. My name is Mahesh Madhav, and I'm a performance engineer here at Ampere. And today I'm joined by Tony Dana, who is the Director of Technical Program Management at Ampere. And today we're going to be chatting a little bit about board design, board manufacturing. So welcome, Tony. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me today. <laughs> so this is a really great topic of technical discussion that I want to have because I would love to know more about what it is that we do in the industry to put a board out for silicon testing, for silicon debug, you know what customers use and so on. And I know a lot of people in this office in particular were focused very much so on the SOC actually creating the silicon, we don't think that much about what's happening outside at the kind of physical platform layer. So I was hoping to get you to kind of give give us an overview of what that process is like. Sure.
1: Yeah. Happy to discuss this today. We develop at Ampere a number of different boards or systems or platforms. Those words are somewhat interchangeable. And we develop them for both our internal use and as a reference for customers to base their designs on. And we also develop platforms that we will have an ODM or OEM sell for us.
0: Okay, so there's multiple boards that we manufacture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We actually simultaneously will have multiple designs in flight for one des- one silicon design or one silicon chip that we're working on.
0: Oh, Okay, so we could have multiple boards for different customers as well then.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We will develop a reference board towards a specific market. And then one customer, multiple customers may take that design as a reference and take that to market. Or we may work with a customer closely, work with them on their design, and then they take that to market as well. They will use our reference design as a guide
0: for their designs as well. Got it. Talk us through kind of the timeline of. What boards are that kind of come online and help us in our manufacturing process as, as time goes on?
1: Sure. Let me step back for a minute and yeah. give you a, a timeline of the whole product at Ampere here. It's, a, it's quite a long process. If you imagine a line or a timeline that scopes over from the very beginning of concept, from the beginning of the first ideas, and that goes all the way to what's called end of life. And that whole window can be many years and is many years long. And then in my mind, I break that up into two general parts. The first part is from concept to what we call tape-out, which is where our first silicon design is sent to manufacturing at a foundry. In general, a good kind of middle point to use as before tape-out or after tape-out. And the boards and systems obviously need a a part, right? So that's after tape-out. We need that silicon to put onto a board. So our designs start before tape out actually. Some months before we go to tape out, we start engaging with OEMs and uh, board manufacturers and component suppliers to talk about where we're going to go. But before that chip comes back from manufacturing, we will have boards in place standing by ready to go and have been tested so that when the silicon arrives in our office, we're ready to power on the system. So we will start the design uh, well before tape out and that will go on in many generations uh, many iterations through till the product is launched and then even after the product is launched we go into another phase which would be called sustaining Mm -hmm. Uh, there would be other customers that potentially will come in and take our reference design and design their board around that again so platforms are in design anywhere from months before our first tape out into the sustaining phase uh, before the end of life.
0: Okay, so the reference board that we put out, does it have all of the breakouts and all of the pinouts that one could have coming out of the SOC, Or, or is it kind of a subset of that?
1: In general, we try to provide as much as we can. You really can't provide one platform that has a breakout of everything and be a reference of what a customer would use. So in the real world... A customer is only going to attach certain devices to our chip, and they'll attach it in certain ways. We try to provide a solution that is as thorough as possible, but in some cases, we have to develop two different platforms to cover the full spectrum of what our capabilities are. Because one customer, A, won't use that, right? but they need a reference of how they should set up their system so that when they... Look at the layout, they look at the configuration and the schematic, they say, "Okay, this makes sense. this is our kind of target area, and then another customer uh, may not want that same complexity they may mm. want a lower cost solution they may want they may be focused on an area that doesn't need as much i o doesn't need much performance or consumes more power uh, so there's many different configurations and initially the you know our first platforms are, are designed to cover as much as possible. Uh-huh and then we'll take those and optimize
0: those or work with the customer to help them and get to their end solution. Got it. So you had mentioned lower cost. Some customers may want to, for example, not have so many PCI breakouts, Mm -hmm. right? So what are some of the other ways that customers can tailor the reference design for their own needs?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a number of different areas, and, and you look at it primarily from the way the chips are configured with their I/O. So, to, in today's SoC market and in and, and server market, primarily the input output is through PCIe. We do support many of the slower case, uh, lo- slower uh, I/O types: GPIO, I2C, SPI, UART, things like that. Those are all kind of standardized, and we support that. But the the configuration comes largely from PCIe the uh, number of DDR lanes that they want, the the size of that, and then how they attach to those. So whether they want riser cards, how they want to attach, we, we support what's called bifurcation mm. through PCIe, and uh, that allows a lot of flexibility in the configuration that they would want to support. So whether they want to support
0: a by four or by eight PCIe breakout. Interesting. So if I hearken back to my days, right out of or Actually, during grad school, I was involved in a startup company, and we were making small handheld devices. And we made our own board, and it was about four inches by four inches. And what we were trying to do there was go for the most dense uh, kind of system you can to make it like a small handheld device. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we did was we made that board like 12 layers thick. That's right, Yep. And it was, I think, one of the... the Kind of thickest or most number of layers you could get at that time about twenty years ago, hmm. can you talk about like you know layers uh, of the board and how how there's a trade off between going from uh, a many layer board to kind of something that's more spread out right yeah we we use and in an industry today, you see companies
1: using twelve fourteen sixteen layer boards pretty consistently. The more layers you have, there's additional cost, right? You add another layer, it's more material, more routing, so there is a a slight increase in that. And so all of our customers are cost conscious, right? We want to reduce that that cost to the customer as much as possible. Uh, At the same time, right, we want to provide performance. So our directive and what our customers are looking for is the best performance at the lowest cost possible. So, we do this trade off in our platforms as well, right? We try to reduce the number of layers where possible, but that trade off comes at a performance cost at times. So, if you put too many signals on one layer and they put them too close together, you won't have the ability to run your memory or your PCIe at, a high, at such a high frequency. So, there are routing rules that we provide, and, and what I'm getting at is the signal integrity of the, the okay. routes. So we have to pay attention and we do a lot of simulations and a lot of time characterizing the layout so that we meet our goals our performance goals and sometimes that requires that we have to add layers to meet that. So it, there is this trade-off of performance and layers and costs that we make continuously in nice. our designs.
0: You know, uh, going back to my my uh my little uh 4x4 board, one of the things that we ran into uh, when we got that board back, you know, we had p- perhaps four grad students <laughs> doing doing this layout. We we ended up getting it back from manufacturing, and we try to boot the thing, and it doesn't work, mm. or you kind of like see some blips go up, but then they, they go back down, and and we were debugging that, and it took us a long time to figure out. You know, we we hadn't done much validation on it, uh, mm-hmm. it four grad students, of course, and. For computer science grad students at that, uh, you know we, we started debugging this as computer scientists would do, and just started lifting discrete components off of the board and using blue wires to kind of like loft them up and see what happens if I take this cap off or you know this resistor. And what we found that there's this huge electrolytic cap that was placed on top of a, a diagonal power power wire. And I think I was actually an inductor. And the inductor ended up creating this like field that prevented the the signal, the signal yeah. to, to go and actually power things. So we actually had this this cap or, or inductor it was sitting there on stilts to give it separation. Mm-hmm. And then we, we got this thing to work. But, you know, what I remember from, from that and relating to your, your story is routing is important. And you had mentioned that you do simulations mm-hmm. to debug all of this pre-manufacturing. Uh, That's right, yeah. Right. I find that immensely important. Can Can you talk about how you validate the board and how you make sure that you don't run into the same issues that I faced? Right, so
1: we do a, a lot of work beforehand. We have the schematic reviews which create the system. We put say which components are gonna be there and how they're gonna be connected, but it's not the actual layout. It's the schematic of how it's supposed to be connected, what components are supposed to be there and how they're supposed to be interconnected. And then from that point, right, you have to take that into a real layout where you place all of your components, you run, you, you create the traces in the, on the PCB layers. And when I say create it, right, we're doing all of this work in CAD tools, right? Yep. None of it's done on paper anymore. Then there is this schematic versus layout reviews that we do and tools that we run that check to make sure that the layout is actually correct to what we intended it to be correct. And then in addition to that, we will extract out of that layout the electrical characteristics. So the capacitance, the impedance, the resistance of all of the traces based off of the board characteristics and the metal characteristics of the traces that we're using. Mm -hmm. And then we'll run that through simulation tools that will tell us if we're running interfaces at these frequencies and we're seeing transitions of the electricals, at this frequency, this is the, the type of response that you would get. So we simulate exactly how the PCIe interface will act across these traces on the okay. layout so that we know that the signal integrity is meets our requirements. We do this on huge number of traces and layouts. It, it's costly, and we spend a lot of compute resources doing this. And we spend a lot of time doing reviews and making sure that what before we send this out to manufacturing that it's gonna do what we want and that it's gonna power on correctly and, and avoid those issues that, that that many people have
0: seen. It seems like it's well worth all of that effort pre-manufacturing. Oh absolutely to do that.
1: Yeah, it's it's a huge worth. I mean the turnaround times from what we call Gerber out, which is when we send a file to be manufactured, to when the actual system comes back it is at least four to six weeks in mm-hmm. most cases. That's You have to restart. And then there's an enormous cost for the material that we have to buy as well. And not to mention the lost time in the market yep. and the time that engineers have to debug. Absolutely, right? It's you know more than time well spent to go ahead and, and be tedious and have the reviews and let your peers look at what work you did and run lots of checking tools mm. to see that you're meeting the
0: design rules as you expected them to. So when you do have the occasional escape
1: Mm.
0: are there ways that you can salvage the particular board so they can be yeah. used continuously? I mean, afterwards? there
1: are a lot of tricks and things that we do behind the scenes that don't really ever get made visible. Commonly we add, we'll add wires or we'll add short, we'll short things out or we'll move components.
0: Are those the blue wires? That's that right.
1: Seen? Yeah. I mean, people generally refer to blue wires as the kind of the cheats that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just an industry term that we've had for years that when a system comes back and you have to you know cut a trace on the board because you can actually cut open the pcb traces oh, if you wow. have to and and then you solder on another wire right and, and there may be some signal integrity but you can actually prove that it, it functions right and then you know that that's the area that you have a problem in and you go in and redo that part of the layout if you have to oh i see so if you have to
0: do a second rev that's right then yeah. then you know what
1: what right to do there. and and we do a lot of testing even before our chip comes back to ensure that we we don't want to have blue wire so we want to if and if we do we want to catch that before before the chip comes back or before a customer puts our chip on their board so we'll help work with the customers we'll do reviews of their layout to go through to avoid this so that
0: they will have a a better chance of getting to market quicker mm-hmm. so one question i have is i've seen um, let's talk about sockets a little bit and uh, the difference between how SOCs are connected to the board. Sure. Um I've seen like in uh, client parts and perhaps cell phones uh they use BGA packages. That's right. Yeah.
1: Right. And a BGA package is ball grid array mm-hmm. and those are packages that are actually soldered onto the PCB. So the on the underneath that package once it's attached you can't really see it. But before that, they're there little, generally gold balls or lead-free balls that actually get, that get reflowed so that those balls go through and attach to the PCB. Uh, and then that part really can't be removed very mm-hmm. easily, right? It's, it's not glued onto the board, it's meant- Soldered met, down. Yeah, yeah, soldered down yeah so that that's a bGA okay, uh,
0: and then the other one is the the lga
1: that's right landing right. grid array yeah and, and there are different types of both the bGA and Lga mm-hmm. you'll hear some other names added to them, but an LGA is generally considered a something you can socket. so that means you can open up the system and release some retention clip and remove the chip from the system mm.
0: so what's the trade off for a particular customer who Who's choosing to do socketed versus soldered down? Is there some performance benefit or power benefit from doing BGA? In general, I think what we talk
1: about is performance, meaning uh, signal integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also uh, cost. So there's a cost difference and then there's also the customer preference. The SOCs that we sell can be rather expensive and, and so can the, the motherboards that we that are that we put our chips onto. So some customers will dictate that they want a part that can be removed in case they want to change out the SOC or our chip and put in another chip mm. or reuse that chip on another board. And in many cases, I find that that's deemed by the customer as an industry standard or a request that they have. Some customers alternatively prefer a BGA, right? They, they know that they're building the System, They're going to solder it onto the motherboard, and they don't plan to make any changes. Mm -hmm. In general, what I've seen is that uh, BGA, there is a concern about signal integrity. People feel like in a socketed environment, you can get slightly better signal integrity. Really?
0: That's what I've been hearing, yeah. Okay. Based on the accuracy of the placement of the BGA, if you're off by some millimeter or, I don't know, it would seem like... Yeah, so understand
1: how that how that's possible. How that's possible, and I think it's possible because of consistency in the soldering. Mm. So we're talking about DDR interfaces that have a high number of pins, and in a in a socketed situation, you have a consistent impedance, resistance, and capacitance through Ah. the through what's being attached to the board, and you know that that's consistent. Now, in general, I think you can get to these speeds. You just need to build in more margin in the rest of your system to accommodate that variation. So it's possible to do. I think some people are saying that it, it, it is easier to start with an LGA. In engineering, it does provide an advantage as we start to work with a chip as it comes back, because it's easy to take one system, put in one chip, and then pull it out and put in another chip in the exact same system.
0: Ah, for testing. That's right.
1: So then you can required. eliminate that is whether it's a chip problem or a board problem right away. And you can have, you know, in manufacturing, there's always a chance that the board could, there could be a defect in that board that we didn't, we weren't able to detect before
0: we powered on. I see. So even for production BGA builds, you'd imagine that during validation, those chips were tested using a a socketed LGA.
1: Well, that is that is interesting. So that we actually manufacture and, and build and design a socket for BGA chips. So every company, when they first start getting their chips, They will design a, for a BGA chip, they will design a special socket so that they can attach that to the board and run their development so they can do what I just prescribed. But those sockets are really expensive. But then you do get to a point where you have to solder it onto the board, right? You get into manufacturing and you have to solder on a large number. The customers want hundreds of boards. You have to solder that many on the the socket that I'm referring to for BGA is really expensive. So we don't want to design or build hundreds of those because of the cost limitations. I see. Yeah. It 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 allows us the, the socket allows us to do that variation and checking.
0: So I'm curious also, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about the board design, but can you talk through what really happens after chip in house and you know the, the process of the bring up and volume debug, volume manufacturing, and how we get that product into the hands of the customer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is, a to me, a really exciting part of the company and phase in our design. What you're asking about is from the time that a chip comes back from manufacturing, from when we first power it on until we launch the product. And that phase of, of design or the phase that we go through is involves many teams, almost all the teams at Ampere. So let me just go through some of those teams that mm-hmm. are involved. We've talked about the board design team. Uh, But in addition to that, you have to have software, right, that runs on the systems. Those teams are incredibly involved in bring up and uh, launching a product. You have all of the manufacturing teams highly involved. You then have a test team that's really deeply involved, as deeply involved as anyone else in terms of screening the parts, running different tests on the silicon itself to check to see are they good working parts or not, Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, they run tests that will tell us the characterization of the part. It'll tell us how much power it's using, and it will also characterize the technology that we're using. So we will produce chips that vary in the process. So when I say vary in the process, it means that the electrical characteristics of that silicon that we get back will have faster process or a little bit slower meaning the capacitance and resistance values change a little bit, which mean the the traces or signals are either faster or slower. And also the devices, the transistors that are on that silicon can be made to run a little bit faster and consume a little bit more power or run a little bit slower. So we characterize that whole silicon, and the test team does a lot, the vast majority of that work. That's
0: kind of a physical characteristic of the silicon, right? That's right. Is that what they call shmoo?
1: that yeah that's yeah that's exactly what i'm getting at so we will shmoo parts and what that means is we'll take a part and we'll put it onto a tester and then we will shmoo it across uh both voltage and temperature and uh frequency and then not only that we'll take parts that are fast parts in the process and slow parts in the process and parts that have a higher resistance and lower resistance and we'll shmoo those parts so not only do we take one part and do it across voltage temperature frequency. Mm -hmm. So we do it across voltage, temperature, and frequency. We then take a group of parts uh, from different wafers, from different process at the foundry, and we shmoo across those as well so that we get a really good idea over the course of the production. And then not only over production, but the course of the life of the silicon. as, As the silicon ages, it will change in characteristics slightly, which we can predict. And we do all of this testing well before we launch a product. So I talked a little bit there about the test team, the software team, which which writes all of the drivers, all of the enablement that we need to get an OS stable. We talked about the board teams that will build the systems that we put our chip onto. Then there are other teams that you don't hear so much about, but are just as critical, right? Sales teams, we're not going to stay in business unless we sell this. We have product marketing teams, which determine what markets, how to market our product, what are the best areas to go after. And that also encompasses uh, what SKUs or configurations we do. Do we want to sell really, really fast parts that are high power? And is that, can we sell those at a premium or do we want to sell some slower parts and try to sell a higher volume of those to someone else?
0: So that's really interesting because you're you're saying that the feedback coming from the customers goes through sales and that helps the Shumu process to help to to determine binning and that, that kind of characteristic, right?
1: Yeah, there's this whole feedback loop between sales, product management, then the actual engineering team that's doing the testing to ensure that we can sell the parts at the right price and yield the parts. So one thing we haven't talked about is yield. Mm -hmm. So in the schmooing that we do and in the characterization that we do, we're also predicting what the yield of our parts is going to be. So if on a wafer there's X number of parts, we don't get all of those parts out. We only get a percentage of those out. And then a smaller percentage of those are going to be the really, really fast parts. A percentage of those are going to be the ones that have every part of the chip working and we will sell those potentially at a premium. Mm-hmm. But we have to determine how much, how many of those we can get. And then product management, sales, determine do we have the customers for it? How much will they pay for it? And we have to give them that yield data so that they can make those correct predictions. And it's critical to a company like Ampere or anyone else in the business to be able to get that right.
0: Yeah, and this kind of yield uh, economics mm-hmm. is... Part and parcel to any semiconductor manufacturer, right? Uh,
1: Yes. So um, especially in the frequency area, right? Because you can boost your frequencies with higher voltages, but that has effects on the silicon. Getting the proper balance of power and frequency is key to being able to know that you can manufacture that part. It will survive the lifetime of that part of how many years that you're guaranteeing that part. There's a lot of work that goes in, and and I'm kind of starting to touch on things like reliability Mm and quality, that we have another team that does that. right? We run parts through rigorous testing to know that they're not going to fail in the field and that they're going to last for as long as we expect them to last for and that our customers aren't going to have issues with our systems. So, yeah, a lot of teams involved, and it's a really exciting time because you go from the first power on where everybody stands around the first few chips, <laughs> and you're wondering, is it going to work? And, yep. of course, it does usually work, and if it doesn't, you, you, there's all this attention on how do we get it to work as quickly as we can, and where is the issue, and how do we work around it? You go from that kind of hyper-focused small team, and the goal is to enable as many teams in as many areas as yep. quickly as possible so that you can get this product to the customer and the product can take it into their data center or in their market as quickly as possible.
0: It feels like there's a grand, it's a grand optimization of making sure that the the board is tested and manufactured in time for silicon to be brought up, right? Yep. And the software and the firmware has been aligned so that you can get that latest debugged firmware from yep. the virtual platform and now onto the silicon as well and it's like a lot of things are coming into place at that one point in time for chip bring up that's right
1: yeah all these teams get do all this work to prepare to get ready to get their different aspects all lined up all their ducks in a row and then when the chip arrives and the systems are there and we power on it's uh coordinated chaos yeah it's really it's kind of really amazing to see and it's a great exciting time and there's always challenges that we face but then we start to enable more people, and then you sample to customers, and people are super excited to see this new design that you have and what capabilities you have that nobody else has yet. It's really a challenging environment, but super collaborative. And um, yeah, people are really excited about it.
0: Yeah, I know you have a lot of experience in this kind of coordination. Can yeah. you speak to the the program management aspects and the right. how, how you go about doing this?
1: <laughs> yeah this will be an interesting conversation. So, <laughs> yeah, so I am a technical program manager and it's I this is what I love about my job is that I, I I've done design I did design for a long time, I guess almost 20 years or so. I actually did chip design and I've moved into a technical program management role uh, because I find it fits who I am better. So I've, I've moved into this technical program management role because it suits who I am better. And what that is for me is that I get to uh, interact and work with teams from across the company. And I do like diving into deep technical issues and focusing on one things, but I also uh, even more enjoy the diversity of what we do and across the different teams. And I find the technical program management provides that area for me so that I can work with the different teams across the area, across the corporation, across the different aspects of what we need to do and try to coordinate all of that chaos and all of that effort that's going in so that we can produce the best results in the shortest amount of time. I find that that my role is exciting because I get to see all of what's happening. Uh, across the different areas, and I get to participate in the challenges and find ways to mitigate or work through the challenges we have, and still accomplish the, the goals that we're we're after. The, one of the biggest rewards in, in technical program management is coming to a point where you you don't know where to go, yeah, and uh, you're not sure who can provide the answer, but. Uh, You know that you have to get the right people in the room or together and communicate, get them to communicate to each other to figure out how to get to where you need to go. And um, yeah, I really thrive on getting the right people together, getting them to communicate and collaborate and producing results.
0: At some level, you may not know the technical answer yourself. Yeah, most
1: times, 99% of the time, (laughs) I don't know the answer, and I'm usually the guy in the room that provides the wrong clue or gives the wrong idea (laughs) on how it should be fixed.
0: But you know who may have the answer. Yeah,
1: that is really true. You're a connector in some way. Right. So what I do thrive on is, is getting to know the people in the company, what they're working on, and knowing when they need to be involved or how that relates to what other teams are doing. So one of the things I look for is as a program manager is are which are the teams that are not really communicating well, they're kind of working in isolation of each other but actually do have a dependency on yeah. each other. So we actually have meetings or we plan events so that that communication is improved and we will bring them in together to discuss what dependencies they have on each other and when they will be able to deliver to those dependencies. We spend a, quite a bit of time organizing that and establishing that communication that happens in meetings and in conferences, but it also happens one-on-one. So in my role, I get to kind of play this communicator role, which is really quite nice.
0: What What are some of the techniques that you use for preparing people for the power on, for chip in-house?
1: Sure. Seriously, we ask them to get a lot of sleep and to drink a lot of coffee <laughs> beforehand, <laughs> and then they're ready when they come in. So. That's seriously, I'm kind of joking there. So we do a lot of preparation beforehand in terms of organizing the different steps that we have to go through. Who are the teams? Who are the individuals? Who are going to use which systems and which parts at what time? We talk through what are those steps and who needs them. And then other people will say, okay, I have this dependency until this team A can get X, Y, and Z done. I can't get started. So, okay, we take a note of that, and we will map out all of these dependencies so that we have a coordinated effort. And then we do we try to do a really good job of communicating, which means either getting into a room or having a conference and documenting where people are mm-hmm. along the path of, of bring up and then sharing that across the team so that other teams know, okay, we've gotten this aspect of the design working. Okay, I can go do this now. Right, We talk about how we're going to do it beforehand, and then when we come in, and our actually and bring up we have constant communication and, and regular intervals of getting together and discussing hey we found this bug today we found this bug well which one of those is the most important to focus on right which one blocks the most people or is the most critical to our success and which one okay can we we think we can work on in the background and deprioritize. So it, there's a lot of communication that goes on, and there's a lot of preparation in the back to get teams ready for when they when we get the chip back so that, that people are coordinated in their efforts.
0: I saw that some of the people in Maury's team here, the, the OS folks, were doing a kind of an exercise in the lab uh, where they were pretending, or they're doing a mock power-on. That's right. One yeah, of the, the we call it a mock bring-up.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and it yeah, it's, it's common where you'll come in and you'll basically step day by day or even hour by hour through what what you expect the process or the steps or who's going to do what over the course of the bring up so that you the teams kind of know who they're going to hand off to, who they're going to communicate to. And you can even go further than that and, and, and present issues or bugs where, OK, what happens if this doesn't work? If this interface doesn't mm. work and we have no communication can we work around this? Can we still find a way to to communicate with another aspect of the chip? Can we still find a way to power on? Can we find a way to get to a boot? All of those things, we try to find workarounds and have backup plans for that. And, and that's what that mock bring up is yeah. for is to, one, to establish those avenues of communication and start thinking, have the team to start thinking about, okay, if things don't work the way we want them to, how are we going to get around it? Who else do we need to pull in? Who's the expert on this area or that area so that they're on standby or on call if we need to bring them in?
0: Yeah, one of the, the people today, were they were telling me how uh, they tried to stick one of the, the debug uh, debug devices onto one of the ports and realized that, oh, it, it didn't fit. Mm-hmm. There just needs to be some kind of interposer. So everybody needs to have this interposer if they're going to go and do this kind of work. So I think uh, for them, it was a discovery in their mock Power On that you know, they need right a and few it, of these
1: devices, and it's much more advantageous to find that problem before the chip comes in than to be in the lab after being there for so many hours and being tired and finding out that you can't plug in this yeah. debug connector that's critical to determining what's happening on that interface. So yeah, that that's the real that shows the real value of now you now you found that problem before the bring up, you can go get that connector. You'll have that in the lab before your bring up.
0: It seems to me I I I tend to think a lot in analogies and the one that popped up just now is you know Olympic athletes at the top of their game they're going to go and throw that javelin and there's a specific set of techniques that they have to prepare themselves to get up to that line and the number of steps that they take before they reach top speed and how many steps they take while they're at top speed and when they bring their arm back to throw it and it's all practiced so many times that it becomes kind of a, a muscle memory. That's right, yeah. Right? I think that's what we're trying to achieve with this kind of handoff, power on, and the different roles that everyone has has to play.
1: Yeah, we do, exactly. I mean, the mock bring-up gives us that muscle memory, right? We go through it. We also go through the different areas that we have to know that we check ongoingly. There's a there's a lot of practice that goes on beforehand. And even when you talk about, we, like, a while ago, we talked about board design and things like that. Well, those reviews that we do before we release the board to manufacturing are really critical even after it comes back. Because we've, we've done a review and examination of the board and system, and so now we have a really good idea of where are the areas that we made the most changes? Where are the areas that potentially are the new part of the design that are may not be as reliable? the team has a good understanding of that because we've spent the time to do the reviews to to dive in and discuss okay maybe we should focus our efforts on a better quality design over here and so you know that that helps that preparation work helps significantly great
0: thanks for joining us Tony Dana he's the director of technical program management at Ampere Computing we had a really great discussion on board design and manufacturing and a discussion on uh, the different kind of boards that we use for our, our debug and bring up thank you so much for having me